0: Femeral is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. If you rewind to the 1980s and 90s, video stores were everywhere. They came in different shapes and sizes, states of cleanliness and levels of cool. But they had one thing in common, racks and racks of videotapes. But now, with thousands of titles available to stream at the click of a button, What does a physical store really have to offer? A shopping destination? A bit of nostalgia? Just a memory? Today, ephemeral producer Trevor Young traces the rise, fall, and potential future of the video store. When I was about
1: eight or nine, my mom started taking me to a local video store in Austin, Texas called I Love Video. Up to that point, my idea of cinema was Star Wars, The Phantom
0: Menace.
2: I've been wondering, what are Midi midichlorians?
0: midichlorians are a microscopic life form that resides within all living cells. I don't understand.
1: But at I Love Video, I was exposed to a vast library of old-timey classics.
0: But what about us?
1: We'll always have Paris. Horror flicks. <gasps> ethereal dramas,
2: Mr. Malkovich, I think I can
0: explain. Yeah, explain. We operate a little business here that simulates for our clientele the experience of of, of being you, actually.
1: And all sorts of movies. So that by the time I was in high school, I had developed a deep love for cinema. I always credit I Love Video for that. The place meant a lot to me. And
2: without a doubt, I'm not alone in my experience. It's hard to overstate the importance of the space of the video store. Whether it was a shabby place or whether it was a glitzy blockbuster or whether it was a kind of quirky, artsy-fartsy place with memorabilia or whatever, the space of the store is hugely important because it's a social space and a physical space, creating this new sense of a physical relationship of shopping with movies. My name's Daniel Herbert, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Michigan in the Department of Film, Television, and Media, and I am the author of Video Land, Movie Culture at the American Video Store.
1: Dan's book Video Land taps into something many of us have likely felt at some point, that going into a video store is unlike any other movie-going experience.
2: At the movie theater, you would go and, you know, you might shop to the extent that you pick one of the four films that are playing at the theater, but then you buy a ticket and you sit down and you kind of have this consumption experience. Whereas you don't watch a movie at the store, the store is all about shopping and contemplation and interacting with the physical objects of the shelves and the tapes, interacting with the physical bodies of the other shoppers and the clerks, and interacting socially with whoever you're there with, your family, your date other shoppers, seeing what they're watching. In terms of transforming movie culture, it made movies shoppable.
0: Come to the warehouse and rent the hit movies you want when you want them with the warehouse movie rental guarantee.
2: The retailing of movies creates a public forum for that kind of evaluation of movie taste. And sometimes that's announced, right, when you're talking. So much of that was also invisible, that you'd like walk and you'd look at a tape and you'd say, that's not for me. And that's like this momentary, ephemeral interaction with an object in a store.
1: Like me, Dan also has fond memories of his childhood video stores, even if some of them were a little rattier than others.
2: I grew up in a small kind of working class town on the south side of Detroit. And we got a video store there actually quite early, like 83, 84. And this was a classic junkie mom and pop shop in a totally beat up strip mall. That particular place had carpet on the walls and it was just gross. And the shelves were like, you know, handcrafted wood with stapled carpet on them. And I remember, like, it was totally fascinating and amazing to go in there and to see all the boxes, especially because in those days, horror films were big, cheap action films were big, and those things had crazy lurid covers.
0: The following movie is rated R.
2: So just to being a kid with very protective parents seeing like slasher movie covers and like action movie covers I was like this is a world of amazement. My family like every other family movie rental just became habit. Every weekend two or three movies if not on weekdays. I'm Gen X and I grew up in a suburb without an art house theater. So like my introduction to like quality cinema, specialty cinema, indie stuff, foreign films like, my kind of cinephilia was fed by videotape rather than by an art house theater. When I saw things like Eraserhead.
0: Oh, you are sick.
2: Or Drugstore Cowboy. You
0: guys got any blues? Hell no. You know how hard it is to get blues these days, David.
1: Now, how about some morphine? I got some good old morphine.
2: And I first saw the glimmer that film could be more than just Arnold Schwarzenegger. All right, everybody. You know, that set a trajectory for my whole life, making me think, like, eventually, that I could study films as a kind of serious thing.
1: You'll hear Dan mention David Lynch's Eraserhead a few times throughout this episode. And there's a reason for that. Eraserhead demonstrates one way in which home
2: video was so valuable to film culture. I mean, it's a super weird movie, like, even by weird movie standards.
0: I had an operation on my arm here, doctors said I wouldn't be able to use it. What the hell do they know, I said, and and I rubbed it for a half hour every day, and pretty soon I had my arm back again.
2: But I also think the history of that film, in terms of its being so exclusive, right? Like, it played in midnight screenings in L.A., and New York, And then, you know, it's this kind of underground thing. Like, how do you get access to it if you're not in a big city, if you don't have, like, a midnight movie screening? And with home video, you could see Eraserhead if you lived in suburban Detroit. There's lots of cases, too, from the 80s even, where you have things that were failures in theaters, but home video provided this lifespan...
0: Officer KD6-3.7, let's begin. Ready? Yes, sir. Ah! Reset your baseline. And blood black nothingness began to spin.
2: Like, we would not have Blade Runner 2049 if it weren't for home video, because Blade Runner did not do well in theaters, but home video kept it
0: alive. We create a cushion or a pillow for their emotions, and consequently, we can control them better. Memories. You're talking about memories.
2: And then they'd have a director's cut, so there'd be a new home video release. And so you have a film that was absolutely a failure in theaters, but whose legacy has been enormous, and that's entirely because of home video and the way that home video can increase reputations, even for films that did badly in theaters.
1: But nowadays, you can probably find a racerhead and Blade Runner on some online streaming service. It's likely a surprise to no one. The video stores have been closing down left and right for over a decade. According to USA Today, between 2007 and 2017, the number of U.S. video stores dropped 86%, from over 15,000 to just 2,000. Dan
2: saw this coming a while back and knew that someone had to document this. 2008, 2009, it was clear that the industry was changing dramatically netflix had just begun streaming in 2008 one book came out a very good book by joshua greenberg called from Betabacks to blockbuster but i knew that like i could do a very different kind of book and i wanted to do a very different kind of book so i don't know that i knew immediately that i was kind of documenting something that was on its way out but i had the sense that it was like timely and so then by like 2010 or 11, when I really did know that this was going to be a book, by that point, you know, Hollywood Video Movie Gallery went out of business. And so I did know that, in fact, what I was doing was documenting something that was still vibrant, but certainly didn't have a lot of life left. So there was an urgency to the research urgent because it was clear that like everything was changing very dramatically and people were adopting streaming more and more. And Video stores were just disappearing. Dan's research
1: went all the way back to the beginning of home video. It all started with one of the first home video formats, Betamax, which came around in the mid-70s. But home video at that point was something very different.
2: In those early days of Betamax and then a couple years later with VHS, those things were marketed and conceived of as being for television, for recording television programs and playing them at your own convenience. People could watch soap operas in the evening rather than during the day, or one could watch Magnum P.I. You know, on a Saturday morning rather than on a Thursday night. And you could fast-forward to the commercials. Which, of course, is one of the reasons why Hollywood was so upset by it, because it disturbed a business model. The manufacturers didn't necessarily think of these things initially as vehicles for delivering pre-recorded movie content. But quickly, entrepreneurs in the United States thought of that.
1: One of those entrepreneurs was Andre Blay. Blay is often credited as the father of home video. And as it turns out, Blay lived and worked in a place not far from Dan.
2: Incidentally, very strange that I grew up in the same town that Andre Blay was operating actually here in Southeast Michigan, in a town called Farmington, where I lived. He'd already been in the business of kind of magnetic tape, like duplication for like the auto industry, doing like educational videos and things like that.
0: Now let's see what would happen when driving under the influence of alcohol. Let's imagine you're driving and haven't taken alcohol. Watch out for that delivery man. Your rapid perception of the situation and quick brake reaction prevented what could have been a fatal accident.
2: Part of his insight was that he was already in the business of selling pre-recorded content to a certain market, but that pre-recorded content was not Hollywood movies and the market was not general consumers. In 77, so the same year that the VHS format hits North America, he approached all the Hollywood studios saying, I'd like to put your movies on tape and sell them to individuals like private consumers.
0: The only studio that I heard from was 20th Century Fox. We had a nice conversation, and uh, he handed me a list of 100 movies and said, uh, we've cleared the home video rights to these. I made them. We had 50 titles, and we released all 50 titles at once.
2: He paid, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars for the right to put a bunch of old Fox movies on tape. And... He tried to mandate that people could not rent them because he really wanted to kind of keep control of the sale and make it kind of a direct sale thing. And these things were like 80, 100 bucks. But still, people kind of defied him and video stores immediately appeared in Southern California and New York City and in Southeast Michigan. There was a place called Thomas Video and they remember driving across town and getting tapes directly from Blade. It's fun to think about what the first video store was. Different people claim that, but they all pop up very quickly, one after the other in 77. And then that sets the whole thing in motion. So it was certainly an exciting thing, and people were opening video stores left and right, but the industry really exploded in 83 after the VCR prices. They dropped from like $700 to like $300, which of course in 83 was still very expensive, but affordable to a middle-class, working-class family.
1: While video stores were starting to spring up, there was still debate about which video format to use. Most of us think VHS when we think about videotapes. But in those early days of home video, Betamax was still dominant, if only for a short period.
2: Beta tapes were smaller than VHS, and the first beta tapes were only an hour long, kind of conceived of to, again, record television programs. But they put movies on them and you would rent and it would come with two beta tapes. VCRs were these top loading things. The thing would like lift up in this clunk and then you put it in and then it would like sink down into the machine. And it was like, a you know, almost like a reel to reel playing inside there, spinning the dials inside the tape. The format war between VHS and beta was real. And so you'd go into a video store in those days and they might have a thousand videos total 400 would be beta and 600 would be VHS. It was a real kind of debate for store owners and for renters, and certainly for people who were dropping hundreds of dollars on the machines, trying to guess like what format is the right format.
0: Thanks to Sony's revolutionary Betamax deck, which hooks up to any TV set, now you can automatically videotape your favorite show even when you're not home and watch it anytime you want. Good morning, gentlemen. I'm going home to watch The Late Show.
2: Betamax was a higher fidelity visually and sonically, right? So the picture quality was slightly better than VHS and the the sound quality was better. And that was part of their claim to fame. But eventually VHS just kind of took over and then the network effect kicks in and more stores have more VHS tapes than Beta.
0: VHS, the four-hour system from Panasonic and other leading companies. If
2: you're a consumer, you're thinking, well, I'm not gonna buy a beta tape because I only have these options as opposed to VHS, which has these options.
1: The video store market took off fast. According to the Associated Press, by 1985, there were over 15,000 video stores in the U.S. alone.
2: Home video, the VCR, and having a movie on tape transforms the movie viewing experience in incredible ways. One, it puts it in the home. Of course, people had been accustomed to watching movies at home on television, but movies didn't appear when you wanted them necessarily. And so home video exploded the idea that consumers had this kind of amazing control over what they watched, when they watched, and the convenience of watching it at home. And the video store plays into that because with the rental model, these were kind of temporary transactions but offering tons of choices. If it had been a sell-through model only, then people would have been like kind of stuck with whatever hundred tapes they'd bought. But with the rental stores, you know, even the worst video stores had 500 titles or more.
0: This week, the warehouse guarantees you can rent Big Crocodile Dundee 2 and Cocktail starring Tom Cruise. If we don't have a copy available, we'll give you a coupon for a free rental for one of these three hit movies.
2: That sense of catering to individual tastes and desires, that really comes about with home video and the video store being the literal market for taste. Consumers could get what they wanted, when they wanted, where they wanted. That was a transformation, a major transformation.
1: Not only did video stores offer a new sort of convenience, they were also unique spaces in themselves
2: the early video stores, they were just reflections of the quirky personalities of the people who owned them.
0: Hi, Video Sam's got exciting news for you. You can now rent a video overnight and hire these great movies from only 99 cents. Video Sam's libraries are convenient to you.
2: They were just small little retail shops, often rapidly put together by people who might not have had any previous experience in business. Now, there were lots of things that tried to professionalize the business and like there's a whole industry around people who made shelves for video stores and sold it to individuals. And there were people who, you know, specialized in security systems for the doorway and things like that. The point is, is that prior to Blockbuster, there was a huge range of what the stores would look like. Some were super clean, kind of corporate looking. Others were just totally funky and weird.
0: Video player too. There's a store near you, Art. And
2: so it really depended on the individual owner. You have those independently owned stores that really did try to foster eclecticism as its own special value. You know, those art house video stores would hold everything from Ed Wood.
0: I, a fiend. I am a soldier of our planet. I. ...to Fellini.
2: It's about those stores that had huge selections, way beyond Blockbuster. And not just huge, but intentionally outside of the mainstream. Alternative, I guess. And that alternative might be highbrow, and that alternative might be super lowbrow
1: but it would only be a matter of time before corporate movie chains entered the business. For a short period from the late 70s to mid 80s, independent video stores were thriving, but then the most iconic video store emerged.
0: Imagine the perfect video store. It would have a great selection, right? Right! Over 10,000 videos. Three evening rentals, so no rush, no hassle. Fast checkout. 24 hour quick drop return. Open late every night. Well, the perfect video store. Welcome to Blockbuster Video! Blockbuster really hits the
2: scene starting in 87 and then taking off through 88,
0: 89, 90. Blockbuster Video! Wow, what
2: a difference! And they've got this kind of cookie-cutter model, that every blockbuster might be slightly different in terms of arrangement, but they all look the same. They've all got the same color scheme. They've all got the same sign. And so this idea, as we enter the 1990s, that there's a kind of standardization of the aesthetics of the stores themselves. An individual blockbuster store would have like 6,000, 8,000 tapes. So that's a lot of variation, potentially. But still, they kind of sold themselves as having that kind of middle of the road, nothing too far afield. If you want the thing that everybody wants, then we've got that thing that everybody wants.
1: But Dan says the sort of soulless perception of Blockbuster and other major chains wasn't entirely accurate.
2: It's a weird thing the way that history is remembering Blockbuster as just only being this corporate store that killed video stores and movie culture. Because, in fact, when they hit the scene, they had way more movie options than the typical mom-and-pop shop. It's because of financing. If you're like an individual entrepreneur and you're investing in tapes based on your revenue, that's limited. But if you're like a publicly traded company like Blockbuster and you can just flood a space with 6,000 tapes, that's what they did.
0: Nobody has the movie I want. Hey, if it's on video, Blockbuster probably has it. I mean, we have over 10,000 videos. Wow.
2: And so they sold themselves on having more choices. And Hollywood Video, they had like 10,000 tapes.
0: Only Hollywood Video has Star Wars The Phantom Menace for five days, so you can watch it again and again. Welcome to Hollywood. Hollywood Video.
2: I remember even there, this big corporate store had like a cult movie section and a foreign film section that was pretty impressive considering. And no joke, there was a Hollywood Video in Albuquerque that had like a wall of anime. It was like the place to go in the 90s if you wanted to watch Japanese animation. The historical record needs to remember that those places did actually offer lots of options.
1: Contrary to what you'd expect, the rise of corporate stores wasn't all bad for indie stores.
2: The more alternative stores, actually a number of them pop up because of Blockbuster. When the whole video industry starts to really kind of grow more corporate and homogenized in the later half of the 1980s, that's exactly when you see places like Vidiot's open up, Scarecrow in Seattle opens up. They realize that, oh yeah, okay, Blockbuster's kind of taking over the mainstream game, but they don't have Eraserhead. We can actually do quite well right next to Blockbuster because we're doing something pretty different. When you're walking down the street and you see a little ghost, what what you gonna do about
0: Ghostbusters? What? What? What is that? That's the Ghostbusters theme song. No.
2: And that's how we're gonna sell ourselves, as the alternative to mainstream movie culture.
0: That wasn't bad. What else y'all got?
2: I don't think that they were threatened by Blockbuster necessarily, because they were effectively differentiating themselves based on product and clientele.
1: Indie stores were also kept alive by the people Dan mentioned earlier who tend to frequent more quirky stores, the cinephiles.
2: You know, like Truffaut always said that, you know, the best scripts don't make the best films, you know, because they have that kind of literary, you Mm -hmm. know, narrative thing, you know, that you're sort of a slave to. The best films, you know, are the ones that aren't like tied to that slavishly. Some people who thought of themselves as having kind of distinctive tastes would still go to a blockbuster on occasion but would probably pride themselves on going to the cool store in town. And the cool stores definitely did all that they could to maintain that sense of loyalty, almost like a cult community. Because yeah, if you don't have that, then you get out of business. And so there's no single way to characterize who cinephiles were. What is true is that the kind of art house video stores were in places either in big cities or in places with highly educated populations. So college towns. Those environments helped build and sustain video stores that had more kind of artistic leanings or eclectic tastes.
1: Now we land in the 90s, where things started to change.
2: The industry really hits a big, excellent plateau from like 93 through the late 90s. And there's ups and downs, right? And various changes like increasingly Hollywood did actually price tapes for a sell-through audience rather than rental, pricing things at 20 bucks rather than 80, and so people did buy tapes. Everyone's just dying for
0: Jason. And now his latest stab at terror has been slashed to just 1995 Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood.
2: Especially kids' movies, right? Like Disney creating those straight to video sequels to their cartoons. They're the baddest,
0: the wildest, Woo-hoo! the funniest characters in the pride lands. Great, now that we all know each other. And they're back okay. in the Lion King 2 Simba's Pride Woo-hoo! on video today.
2: But DVD hits in '97.
0: This is DVD. And this is what happens when you watch DVD.
2: And the studios all kind of knew that things were done and so if you wanted to kind of be able to sell new hardware and re-energize the whole home video business, it was going to take a different format. Warner Brothers worked with, I think it was Toshiba on the DVD, launches in 97, and by 99, 2000, it becomes the fastest adopted consumer electronics in the history of the planet up till that time, which tells you or tells me that the appetite for home videos was never diminished. It only grew stronger. And so DVD tapped into an excitement for home video that was already there and just said, now it's even better. So DVD, I mean, it doesn't totally wipe away VHS. Immediately, but you know, I think the last Hollywood tape released on VHS was either 2005 or 2006. One format displaces another in six years. I actually have had conversations with the guy at Warner Brothers who ran Warner Home Video at that time, and their whole plan was to create what he called a direct-to-consumer product. They just wanted more direct access to that revenue, and that meant selling rather than renting. The DVD was designed as a sell-through product, that it was cheaper to manufacture plastic discs than the magnetic tapes on plastic cases. And DVD was promoted as being better visuals and better sound, which is true.
0: The picture is twice as sharp as VHS. The sound is infinitely clearer. It looks and sounds like you're at the movies, but you can experience it at home.
2: We today in 2021 can too easily say that Netflix streaming killed video stores. The first attack on video stores was the DVD because it really shifts the whole business model away from rental to direct sales. And that means people, instead of going to Blockbuster, are now going to Walmart and Target and it displaces video stores significantly.
1: Alongside the DVD came the internet.
0: The net, two long time users. Internet is a whole group of networks.
2: The net is made up of some 12,000 individual computer networks.
1: And with the internet came a little website called Netflix. In today's busy world, Going to the video store is a hassle. With Netflix, you just make a list of the movies you want to see and you'll get your first DVDs in about one business day. Founded in 1997, Netflix marketed itself as the first online DVD rental store.
2: The Netflix model, you would get on a computer and rent things by clicking them, and they would get mailed to you. And you could have like three discs at a time or something like that. There's a lot happening with Netflix that's really innovative. One, this idea of no late fees. You could keep the disc for as long as you wanted, you just couldn't get a new one until you mailed it back.
0: Keep them as long as you want without late fees. Return one in this prepaid envelope and they'll automatically send you another movie from your list.
2: Two, this kind of elimination of physical store as a shopping site. You didn't have to go anywhere to shop for movies anymore.
0: Well, this is the last time I rent here. Hey, you're not allowed
2: to rent here anymore. The other innovation is a subscription pricing model. It's comparable to HBO. People paid a monthly fee for cable and having HBO.
0: HBO. Now let HBO be your ticket to the stars.
2: But the idea that you would have a monthly subscription fee for a movie rental store was kind of ludicrous. In one stroke, Netflix changes a lot of different things. And I think the thing that subscription models did is it it removes the sense of value from the specific commodity, the individual tape or disc. Like at the video store, you would pay four bucks to rent a tape or 350 to rent a disc. But subscriptions suddenly say, you pay us 15 bucks a month, And it has nothing to do with how much you watch. The individual movie loses its kind of value. And instead, what they're selling is that sense of possibility and options, which I still think is why people subscribe to Netflix. How many people subscribe to Netflix and only watch one thing in a month? But it's this idea that it's like, oh, but I've got it on tap. Anytime I want it, it's there. And so that's worth whatever the price is now, 13 bucks or whatever. Subscriptions really change the psychology of the whole endeavor.
1: So what happens when we now have an abundance of films at our disposal and the act of physical browsing and choosing is removed from the equation?
2: In the old days of the video stores, you might have a relationship with the store. You might like some stores better than others because of the space. But in the end, you also have like a relationship with whatever you rented from that store. Like, if I rented some Czech New Wave film. I'm gonna sit down and set aside time to watch that thing. Whereas with Netflix, it's hard to speak for everybody because there's hundreds of millions of Netflix users. But I do think that like, the relationship is really about having Netflix rather than having a movie. It's so easy to kind of disregard the importance of any individual movie on the platform because they all seem available eternally, which of course isn't true. But it's like, if I'm already gonna pay for this subscription service, I could fast forward through this or I can turn it off at any point. The relationship is less about with you in an intentional way with a particular movie. And it's more about your relationship with the possibilities there. As a somewhat
1: final nail in the coffin, the introduction of streaming did away with the need for any physical media whatsoever.
2: Netflix streaming first appears in 2007 as a kind of special service to people who were already subscribers to the rent-by-mail thing. And then quickly, within one, two years after that, suddenly Netflix, the streaming library, opens up to people just for streaming, and you don't even have to be associated with a rent-by-mail system. And the video library, although still pretty rotten, ultimately, It grows so that, like, suddenly there's 5,000 movies on Netflix rather than just whatever 400 that they had had previously. And it just grows and grows and grows. And so this idea that, like, you had the convenience of shopping at home, consuming at home, and doing it immediately at the time. There had been cable on demand prior to that. You could have bought a movie through your cable provider. But Netflix streaming provides that with the subscription-based pricing. It's already quote-unquote free. I'm already paying for this. So it's a great service.
1: Other media companies noticed the success of Netflix and quickly followed suit. Hulu launched in 2008 with content that was mostly free to watch but was filled with advertisements. Though Hulu did eventually launch its own subscription service in 2010. Next came Amazon Prime Video, which also launched in 2008.
2: Amazon Prime Video is a very different kind of model. It's really there as a kind of hook to get people attached to the shipping, the Amazon Prime fast shipping stuff. If you want to get your diapers in two days, you also get to watch uh, Look Who's Talking.
0: Is Mikey here? Who are you? I'm his father. Father? Are you the sperm donor? What do you mean sperm donor? I'm the kid's father.
2: Netflix streaming really takes off 2008, 9, 10. Amazon Prime Video becomes available to people. That's really just sealing the deal on video stores that had already been hugely disrupted because of those earlier issues related to DVD.
1: So how did video stores survive throughout the Netflix boom of the 2000s?
2: Some are surviving because they're in smaller towns or rural areas that don't have quick mail, or fast internet service or anything like that.
1: You've got mail.
2: But lots of stores try to come up with this idea of no late fees is a direct reaction to uh, Netflix.
0: Someday, you'll remember where you were when you first heard that there are no more late fees at Blockbuster. If you need an extra day or two with your movies or games, you go right ahead.
2: So it's like, well, shoot, if Netflix has no late fees, then suddenly we look like the bad guys not only is it inconvenient for people to come to our store now compared to the easy rental of Netflix, but now we look like villains because we charge people for not returning tapes on time. And Netflix gets rid of the very notion of something being on time or late. No more the real thing that they push in the 2000s was this idea of new releases because Netflix you still had to wait. You were still in a line with other consumers or other customers to get the latest thing. Whereas, you know, video stores, especially by the 2000s, new movie Wednesday, new movie Tuesday, right? Like, so there was like a release date, a street date for those tapes or those discs. And so even though the movie had been in theaters, if you wanted it faster than you could get it on Netflix and faster than you could get it on cable, then the video stores, were the place to get things faster than other places.
0: Movies are two for just 99 cents every Tuesday at participating video update stores, including new releases. Yes, two for just 99 cents, including new releases.
2: But otherwise, yeah, a lot of stores go out of business. Blockbuster flounders, Hollywood video flounders. It wasn't even about streaming at that point. It was about the whole disruption of Walmart, Target selling movies and about Netflix you know, changing the whole game. With hundreds of titles for the whole family, from only $6.99, there's no better place for movie lovers than Target's epic DVD sale. But hurry, sail on now. In the late 2000s and early 2010s,
1: Dan went on a pilgrimage. Mostly for research for his book, he decided to drive to and visit as many American video stores as he could.
2: I just talked to um, at Video in Fruitport, Michigan. He's owned the store for about 25 years and that, in his estimation, according to his memory, uh, it's the oldest independently owned video store in Muskegon County. I mean, that was like, probably like some of the best times of my life go on road trips and rather than like looking at the Grand Canyon with your dad, you get to look at video stores (laughs) in weird places. I'm in Knox, Pennsylvania, uh, where there's market and video rental. I walked into the store and they did in fact serve as a kind of small grocery store with packaged foods and a video store with a substantial number of VHS tapes and DVDs. I went to like over 20 States over 250 stores, looking at small town stores across the Midwest and the far West and the South. There were some stores that were just kind of totally depressing. I'm thinking of one in particular in Kansas where I showed up and I was just like, oh man, oh man, this is so grim. I gotta get out of here. But other places were still operating at full steam, even if the owner knew that that was not sustainable. He offered to sell me the store uh, several times. They were still buying stock and, and putting new stuff on shelves every week. The weirder thing about a lot of the small town stores is that by that point, a lot of them were not only video stores. They engaged in a number of other businesses because the video rental was diminishing and so they had to do something else. I saw places that sold you know, secondhand kids' clothes. I saw places that sold porcelain figurines. There was a place in Idaho that was half laundromat, half video store. That was pretty cool. There was one place in Wyoming that you could rent movies, you could get whitewater rafting tours, and you could buy a gun. I love the idea that you could like rent Rambo and buy a gun under the same roof.
0: I could've killed them all. I could've killed you. In time telling you the law out here, it's me. Don't
2: push it. The small town stores were really quirky, not in a kind of artsy-fartsy way, but rather in a kind of the vagaries of capitalism kind of way. It's like anything to make a buck, and the stores would reflect the kind of scrappiness of the owner, of like Tris trying to do anything, like selling lotto tickets. The number of stores that had tanning salons or tanning beds attached to them or in a back room that was a huge thing. Oh, so when the summer comes. A lot of people can because they don't have time right. to get out and get the sun. Yeah. But they'll come in and tan. Okay. At what point does the rental slow down? About till April here. Okay. And was, was has the tanning been here as long as the stores no. are open? Okay, when did he start that? Probably a year ago. A year ago. What made him think to do that? Just looking for something else to offset to- The video, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: You probably remember hearing Dan mention a few bigger, nationally known indie stores. Videots in LA, or Scarecrow in Seattle, for example. For a variety of reasons, most of these types of stores are still going strong today.
2: In the book, I kind of refer to these places as video capitals, just meaning it's a kind of centralization under the video store roof of, like, movie culture, right? It's kind of this condensed site for movies and knowledge about movies. And the owners were generally kind of cinephiles and believed in providing a wider range of movie options, almost like a public service. I mean, a lot of them talked in this kind of, almost like they were on a mission kind of way. And the clerks were always cinephiles and and film nerds who, who would largely talk, you know, film trivia all day. What are you doing?
0: Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see?
1: We have a wide variety of Gene picks.
0: Gene's trash. I'm Gene.
2: A number of them endured and still kind of endure even after the mainstream video business was falling apart because even in the face of Netflix, even in the face of streaming, even in the face of... DVD sell-through, you know, a place like Scarecrow, they offer things that aren't easily available on streaming Netflix or aren't available for sale at Walmart, etc.
0: What do you think will be the next obstacle the Earth people will put in our way? Well, as long as they can think, we'll have our problems.
2: Still, the problem is, once the whole kind of ecosystem of video rental disappears and people in general, lose going to the video store as a habit or as a practice, then it's really hard to even maintain that kind of core consumer group that even goes to the specialty store.
1: Still, those stores are cultural staples in their respective cities. Videodrome in Atlanta, where I live, is a bustling hub for film people to congregate and share film knowledge. That holds true for many of the video capitals Dan is talking about.
2: They were community hubs, for cinephiles, the stores like Scarecrow and Vidiot's did a good job of cultivating that cinephile culture in that area, centered around the store. And so one of the things that they've done is sell the very idea of community, that in the face of a communitylessness of Netflix viewers, where we're all detached from each other. We don't even shop next to one another shoulder to shoulder then the stores like Vidiots and, and Scarecrow can say, not only do we have a Fellini film that Netflix never will, but we can provide you as a consumer the sense of belonging that Netflix never will, a sense of shared affinity for eclectic taste in movies. And so they're not just selling rentals, they're selling the very idea of a cinephile community. But to stay alive,
1: many of these beloved community stores have had to adopt a business model that may not be sustainable.
2: Those stores, a number of them, have become nonprofit institutions now. Scarecrow's nonprofit, Videots has become a nonprofit. The non-profit business model that Videots and Scarecrow and others are relying on relies on the idea that you can get people to donate money to a retail operation because you've convinced them that the retail operation is a cultural resource worth preserving. I do think it's just a really hard thing because even with all the nostalgia and all the kind of felt love, it doesn't mean that suddenly a new video store can crop up in Ann Arbor because people are like, yeah, I love video stores, but I'm still not going to one. (laughs) How do you turn that kind of nostalgia or love for an institution into a business model? I do not know.
1: Vidiots in L.A. closed temporarily in 2017 with the goal of reopening a new location serving not just as a video store, but also an art theater and film archive. Here's Vidiots executive director Maggie McKay speaking with KCRW last year.
0: I do think people really need to sit in the dark with their friends and
1: strangers and watch a flickering screen, and they need the human interaction that comes with a video store. And I think more than ever, we're going to crave that.
2: I think Vidiots has been very clever broadening it and saying, when we say we're a cultural resource, we mean that because we're not just a video store. We're a center for movie culture in Los Angeles beyond the transactional things that happen when you rent a movie from us. And I think Scarecrow, you know, has imagined ways of doing that as well. I mean, Scarecrow's big claim too is that they're the largest single collection of movies under one roof, you know, in North America which is important, but it's not like it's like a film archive either. It's like it's a video store.
1: With the closure of so many video stores, there's also one big unintended consequence. What happens to all of those tapes and discs?
2: They try to do these sell-offs of their stock, whether it's tapes in the old days or DVDs later. Anything that's not being sold is landfill. For those of us who have viewed film as an art, as a kind of higher level experience that one can have on this planet. It is disheartening to realize that in the end, they are material commodities that when they lose their value, turn into lumps of garbage. Not that, you know, streaming television's any less poisonous. When I was wrapping up Videoland, this was 2013, 2014. So this was when like lots of stores were going out of business and just the stores were unrented and the tapes were going into garbage bins. That was a real light bulb moment for me in general about how the life cycle of commerce creates material that has value for a time. And then when that value is gone, it is still on the planet. We're stuck with it.
1: There's yet another tragic truth when it comes to the downfall of video stores.
2: In some ways, they created the conditions for their own demise, meaning that they created a sense that consumers could and should have control over their entertainment. And the sense of possibility and options and convenience that they accelerated and activated And all of those things are exactly why we subscribe to Netflix and Disney Plus.
0: Homer Simpson here, proud addition to the Disney family and soon appearing on Disney Plus. I, for one, salute our new corporate overlords.
2: It's like, oh, Disney Plus has these options and it's super easy and convenient and I can watch these things whenever I want. All those kind of expectations of what a streaming platform should provide or does provide Those expectations were initially set up by the video store. That's their bigger legacy is kind of creating a sense of personalization, convenience and control. Ultimately, they were outpaced by other devices and platforms. As I mentioned
1: at the beginning of the episode, I got a ton of value out of my local video store growing up. I Love Video in Austin has since closed down and it strikes me as though I've lost a part of myself. I asked Dan what he misses most about video stores.
2: As a customer, I really do miss browsing physically. I have a hard time describing why it's so important or was so important to me as an individual, but I loved walking through the store. When I was in grad school in L.A., there was a store around the corner called Video Journeys. It's a pretty good store. I would spend an hour browsing that store, and I would walk out with nothing, and I was not unhappy about that. It was just a kind of, like, oh, I'll go down to the store, i got to buy some groceries, and then I'll walk next to video journeys and just look around. Who would, in their right mind, say, I'm just going to look around at Netflix? Of course, there's tons of times that we do look around at Netflix and never watch a thing, but nobody sits down just to browse Netflix, ever. (laughs) Those of us who had favorite video stores I would put money on the fact that it was our favorite, in part because of the people who worked there. It was like, I get to see this one guy who's always got the right joke to crack, and he recommends horrible movies, but I love to argue with him. So much of what I'm saying really comes down to missing the people and the spaces in which one could shop for movies. And by that, by shopping, what I mean is contemplate a future of watching it and having a good time. There is a loss in the loss of the physical space and the social interactions that those spaces generated. And it's hard to put into words because it's visceral and it's embodied and it's in your heart and it's in your mind and it's in your hopes for entertainment and, and enjoyment.
1: I say there's no reason we need to lose those experiences. I urge you to frequent your local video store and keep that community alive. Maybe ask the store clerk about a Racerhead and see what happens.
0: I'd like to rent breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh,
2: this is out. Someone has it. Out? Oh, no. I've, I've been to four other places. You're the only ones that have had it. Well, I can put it on reserve for you if you'd like. Maybe we could
1: call them and ask them to return
0: it. Dan Herbert is the author of Videoland, movie culture at the American Video Store. This episode of Ephemeral was written and assembled by Trevor Young and produced with Max and Alex Williams. Music this episode from the artist Mon Plaisir. Learn more at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Next episode, we'll take a trip to our local video store Video drum in Atlanta to talk to the owners, clerks, and customers. And we'll have a roundtable discussion with iHeart podcast hosts Lauren Vogelbaum and Annie Reese on their best video store memories. Let us know where you rent videos, past, present, and future, at ephemeral.show. For more podcasts from My Heart Radio, visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.